a very inauspicious start. Get your mic turned on. It's a great thing to do. Thank you for letting us come. We're delighted to be here. I was telling the first group this morning that uh, I was in this room long before it was finished. Uh, we've known Joe and PJ for a number of years, and uh, so we were over here watching the, the construction of this thing back in those days. And so I get to preach here. This is fun. I had to run Joe out of town to be able to do it, but I, I do get to do that. And so, Joe, if you're watching, um, sorry about that. <laughs> Grateful that he and PJ are having the time to step away. When, uh, when Jimmy said that we were at Providence in Raleigh for a while, we were there for a long while. It was 37-plus years. And uh, we started the church back in 78. <clears throat> God let us be there until the end of Je- uh, December in 2015. And so my first day is not pastor there was January 1, 2016. And Brian Frost has been our pastor for the last five years. Uh, called, texted him at midnight, January 1, tag, you're it. <laughs> so Joe's going to have a chance to do that with some a uh, grateful brother who comes to be your pastor in the days ahead. So we're, we're very delighted to be able to be here to know the history of the gospel ministry that you have had in this community, uh, to know. I just grew up in Burlington Graham just down the road, so I know this church from the background uh, days. And so what a great privilege to be able to be here. And I can't believe I'm actually getting to be in Greensboro. How cool is that? This is where we used to come. Some of you remember Seller Anton right down the street here? Oh, yeah. They're not there. I mean, how dare they not have Beef Leonardo? I mean, that's, that's what we came. We would bring dates from Burlington Graham over to Greensboro. It was a special thing. So <clears throat> anyway, I'm here now with a better plan. And that is, number one, as best opportunity arises to be able to get to know you in Maskville and, and distance, uh, we want to just love you guys. And that's a part of our, our task, to just love on you in Christ's name. The second thing is to just preach the Word of God. You have a history of being committed to that Word. Joe has prepped you well through the years by teaching you the Word, and we want to carry that tradition on until the next pastor comes on board who will advance it to the next generation. So we're excited about all that God has in store for us in that regard. Now, I was planning to preach one of those start-the-year-be-it-resolved type of sermons this morning. Then Wednesday happened. It kind of uh, threw us for a loop. Well, do we need to have a special time in the service where we're just going to pray? And uh, and so I've got the passage all marked here as to what was going to happen first and Daniel and the prayer for confessing the sins and all the stuff. We're going to do that. And and then the Lord just kind of going like, that's good. Praying is good. But I believe we're going to need more than just the prayer time. I think there's a message involved here. So yesterday morning, that all got changed. And so uh, congratulations, you're going to get a sermon from the book of Judges. <clears throat> yes, it's an exciting moment. Years ago, I was preaching down in South Africa. I was telling some of the guys earlier, and uh, I was in one of those churches that was a very vibrant, shall we say, very open and free worship experience. I mean, there were people running up and down the aisles with banners and hollering and shouting. It was just a great experience. And I'm looking at my Bible thinking, Lord, why did you put a sermon from Judges on my heart for this morning in the middle of all this? But you'll see in a moment, there is not just one portion of the Word of God that speaks the truth. All Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. The man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So listen to the Word of God. Turn to Judges chapter 2. 
This is at the end of Joshua's life and ministry. And before we go into the period of the judges, we get this sort of wrap-up of what was going on with the people of God at that day. So, verse 6, chapter 2, the book of Judges. If you're not sure where that is, you have an inspired table of contents. You can find that. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. They buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. Here's the hard part. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Verse 11, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then it begins to catalog what all happened. Let's pray together and ask the Lord for wisdom. We don't want this Sunday morning to be wasted. We don't want to have just another gathering, sing some songs, hear a little Bible lesson, and then go out of here. We don't want to waste our crisis. Does that make sense? Don't want to waste it. So let's hear what God has to say, because he, he worked me over the last few days this week. I was so prepared for that Be It Resolved sermon, and here we are in Judges with something that I'm more excited about than that. So let's pray together. Father, You speak as you alone can speak. As you alone by your spirit can make your will and your word known. Father, do that this morning. Overcome the deficiencies of this man who's charged with giving this word. Lord, I I need you. Cannot do this without you. And I pray for those who are hearing to hear words from you that are not even words that I spoke but that are from your spirit coming alive in portions of the text that you want different people in this room to hear from you. So we bow before you and ask you to be our teacher this morning, for Christ's sake. Amen. A question that's been sort of on my mind for quite some time is, what is it going to take for our nation to return to the Lord? What will it take? Now, over the summer, I was thinking through some of that because here we are, starting in March, lockdown, pandemic away, finding ways to be quarantined and yet sociable, ways to elbow bump and fist bump and yelling through masks at each other and FaceTiming and Zooming and all the ways that we've been able to communicate with each other and wondering, Lord, is, is a pandemic sufficient, global pandemic, is that sufficient to bring us to our knees. Nope. That didn't do it. A summer of racial and social injustice and unrest flooded the nation. Riots in the streets, burning buildings, people getting killed, all kinds of crazy things, the result of sinful choices made by those who were walking, running, desperately fleeing from anything that God would have to say to the situation. Maybe that will do it. It didn't. We still tried to figure out how we could make our own way. 
economic deprivation, people losing jobs, things happening in the, in the whole process of figuring out how truth factors into anything since everybody in our culture thinks that they can have their own version of truth. Well, that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. Well, that's not truth. Truth by its very definition is exclusive of everything that's not true. So you can't say, well, this is true for you and this is true for me and there'd be mutually exclusive truth. That, that, that doesn't exist. And yet that's our culture. It's all relativistically defined. We, we have this. And now, Wednesday, after a very, very tumultuous period of, of election cycles and all the things that went on with that, and Wednesday happens. And an attack on, on the nation's capital and all the aftermath of that. If, if you aren't aware of that, somebody put a mirror under your nose. <laughs> You're not alive. You haven't been paying attention. And so the question still is, is that going to be sufficient to bring us as a nation back to where we belong at the foot of the cross? The jury's still out on this one. You see, years ago, I thought we were there. I, I got a phone call. I was on a mission trip in South India. And I get a phone call. Kathy called and left a message at the hotel where we were staying. And we just finished up the pastor's conference. going to leave the next morning to come back to the U.S. And it was uh, September 11, 2001. <clears throat> well, needless to say, it was, a, it was a longer trip back than we anticipated. Uh, good news is we got to spend three days in sunny, beautiful Singapore. <laughs> Not intended, not a part of the plan, but that was a part of it. But we watched the news. We watched the various things happening. We were back and forth by email and, and phone calls to try to keep up with what was going on. And something interesting happened that gave me a sense of hope. Maybe this is going to be it. Cathedrals that were museums became prayer places. The Washington Cathedral was packed with people coming together for a time of crying out to God, Oh God, protect us, save us, help us. And that lasted a few minutes. And then we don't want to just talk to God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We want to talk to the gods of all the other groups because we don't want to offend anybody except God. We're appealing to him and insulting him at the same time, which is a fascinating thing. And pretty soon the, the need, the urgency, the crisis passed, and all of a sudden all those cathedrals and all those prayer meetings and all that began to just sort of gradually die away. That wasn't it. So my question is, I looked at the Word of God, is this normal? And is it normal is not the same question as, is this right? The first answer is, yes, it is normal, and it's reflected in the book of Judges. As a cycle repeats itself again and again and again and again and again all through the book of Judges. And what happens is we, we recognize that, that something has to happen to stir our hearts enough that we are seriously crying out to God, that we are desperate for God. Currently, the church in the U.S. is not desperate for God. We're interested in Him. We like to sing pretty songs about Him. 
We love our charts and Bible studies about him. It's the living for him that becomes suspect. All in, sold out, whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving the Lord our God. We're not quite there. So what does the book of Judges offer to us? It essentially tells us that in the course of human events, inevitably there will be a revelation, if we're just paying attention, a revelation that we need the Lord. And if we're paying any attention at all, this will be apparent to us, readily apparent to us. And so as we walk through this, there are five different pieces, five points in the cycle of what happens in the human race in the book of Judges. And it's clear that we have experienced part of that. The question is whether we will experience the entire cycle or just a part of it. The first part of the cycle is that we've enjoyed a period of peace and prosperity. We as a nation experienced that as we were founded on biblical principles by and large by people who were escaping persecution and being shut down in their religious pursuits in the old world and came to the new world for an opportunity to begin to to model freedom of religion in a way that we could do it without fear of being censured, imprisoned, or burned at the stake. Kind of important. And so a period of peace and prosperity began to attend to those who came in and began to try to, to live out. They didn't do it successfully. They didn't do it effectively in every part of the way. As a matter of fact, they failed miserably in so many ways that we look back now and catalog it. And some are even trying to erase that part of history and say, well, that's all that it was about. And it wasn't all just about that. Massive failures, but periods where there were glimmers of hope. And in this passage in verse 7, it says what happened toward the end of of Joshua's life. It says the people served the Lord all the days of, of Joshua. And then all the days of the elders who survived Joshua. They served the Lord during that period of time. And it was a great time and God began to bless and there were wonderful things going on. And then the people began to realize, you know what? Life is busy. And there's a lot to to take our attention away from those things we used to have to do when we were seeking the Lord. And so what happened, the second part of the cycles of Judges, is that rebellion against God and rejection of God began to work its way into the system. And another generation arose that did not know the Lord. They didn't know what God had done in Israel. They didn't know the stories of the wilderness. They didn't know the stories of escape from bondage in Egypt. They didn't know of the promise of the covenant of Abraham. They didn't know all of these things. Now, I'd love to be able to, to know exactly who was at fault for that. But we're, we're clearly not able to say that we're not guilty of any of that because our children all love and know Jesus and they're all walking in the fullness of the, of the glory of God right now, right? All, all, yeah, no. In my, in my own personal time of prayer this morning, I was reading a passage that reminded me yet again how young men and young women that I watched grow up in our church, our youth group, go off in, into college and have their ears turned to other alternate options of what they should believe, could believe, and I've watched them rebel against God and turn against God 
and speak blasphemies against God. These are children I loved. Baptized many of them upon their profession of their faith in Christ. And now I've had to not even have them on Facebook feeds anymore because the vitriolic, ugly, nasty language that's even there. How could such a thing happen? Well, it says rebellion and rejection of God is a part of the cycle. Everything's good until it's not. And then we begin to try to find our own way and rebel against God and turn against him. They provoke the Lord to anger, it says in verse 12. Did evil, served other gods, made their own idols of whatever it was they want to make their idols of. And they did that. And they forsook the Lord and they followed the the nations around them and became like them instead of like the unique people of God. So they went from a period of peace and prosperity, following God, doing what he asked them to do, to a time of rebellion and a rejection of God. And then the third part, the third piece of the cycle begins to unfold. And that is the distress that is the logical consequence of rebelling against God begins to happen. And somehow or another, there's not a correlation in their minds is that God says, do it this way. I got a better idea. I'm going to do it this way. This leads to ruin and devastation and distress. And somehow or another, we don't make the connection that there's a cause effect relationship between rebelling God, running against him, pushing back on God, telling him we know better than he does. And so we end up with a time of distress, devastation as God basically gives us what we ask for. We begin to experience the distresses and devastations of what happens when a people rebel against God. They, they're no longer able to stand before the enemies of God. They're, they're actually contributing to their work. The Lord spoke, and they li- refused to listen. They were severely distressed, it says in verse 15. And they found themselves suffering as a result of their way of life. This sounds really familiar. Because we have all these pundits giving answers. Well, if, if America would just, really, where in the history of the human race you, have you ever seen that happen and work? Well, if we could just redefine morality, then everybody would be happy. Seriously? That's never worked. Nobody's ever found that to be effective. Well, if we could just abandon this and and substitute this and we can do all these things, it'll be great. No, it won't. You will experience the devastation and the distresses and the destructions and any other D word you want to put in there because you're bringing it on yourself. And so why would God do such a thing to us as a people? Why didn't God answer our prayer and protect us from this way? excuse me, you you don't turn to him in any other way except when crisis comes. And then when you come at crisis time, all you're there for is to blame him for not protecting you from the crisis that you brought on yourself. Wait, what? This is not even logical. And so they, they enter a period of distress and devastation. Now here's the part that sometimes is breaking down. And after the time of distress and devastation in the book of Judges, that moves to a time of contrition and confession of sin and crying out, Oh, God, save us. We need us a rescuer up in here. We need somebody to come in and redeem us and deliver us. And God gave them judges to do just that. 
and people would see the hand of God work. It says in verse 18 that the Lord was moved to pity because he saw what they were going through. And God's not desiring us to go through all that, but he knows that if we do what we do against him, there are going to be consequences to those actions, and we bring it on ourselves. How could God allow that to happen? Well, have you read Genesis chapter 3? We did this. If I'd been there, I wouldn't have do that, done that. No, you'd have probably ate all the fruit on the tree. It's <laughs> Adam and Eve's fault. Well, I don't really know that we've got much of a bone to pick with them. We would have done the same thing. But the world fell. And now those who recognize its fallenness in contrition are crying out to God. That's what happens in this book of Judges. God brings a deliverer, and what happens? They're rescued, and they are restored. And as the old song does, peace in the valley. <laughs> it's sweetness in life again. And the rescuers come, and, and there's, there's wheat in the fields, and there's, there's grapes on the vine, and there's cattle on the hill, and there, there are sheep in the stall. It's great out there. They're restored and rescued, and and it begins to happen in a way that God raises up, delivers for them. See, folks, Christ is our deliverer. Christ is our rescuer. He is our reviver. He's sent by the Father to respond to the outcry of people who recognize they need the Lord. So what's it going to take? Well, again, back 9-11, it took for a little while the people to say, we don't have the capacity to do what we need to do. We can't protect ourselves against madmen who will take planes and fly them. Into- How do we protect against something like that? We can't keep that same group. I remember thinking about, well, the football games are going to be going on stadiums all over the place in the next week or so. People did not want to go to the games. They're, they're putting everybody together, the eggs in one basket, making it easy for terrorists to come in and get them all at one time. We're going, I'm, not, I'm not going to that game. I'm not going to the mall. I'm not going. And very quickly disappeared our cry for help, our insistence, Lord, we need you, became matters of unspoken sentiments conveyed to him. Lord, we got this. We're all right. We we got it covered. What happens is that the infidelity of individual hearts eventually resume our own indifference to the Lord as soon as the opportunity presents itself. We cry out for help until we think we don't need it anymore. And then it's like, God, we got it now. Thank you for getting us through that rough bump, but now we can get back. We got it. Human beings can handle this. We can do this right. Well, as we're going to see, that's really not the case. But what happens is that uh, our hearts are not built around the truth that Christ is the center of all things. When I was in seminary, I, I studied under a man named Richard Lovelace. wrote a book called The Dynamics of Spiritual Life. He taught church history when I was in school. And in that book, he wrote these words. He says, the ultimate concern, putting those two words in quote, ultimate concern, the ultimate concern of most church members is not the worship and service of Christ in evangelistic ministry and social compassion. No, rather, it is survival 
and success in their secular vocation. That's what we're really interested in. Lord, will you bless me at work? Will you give me a bigger car, a better home, more clothes, healthy kids, a wonderful track record? Of, yeah, this is what I'm really looking for, Lord. He says, those aren't the values of the kingdom. Yeah, I, I know, I know. And I'm making a place for that in my life. And so he goes on to say this. He says, the church is merely a spoke in the wheel of life connected to a secular hub. Do you remember the day when they wouldn't even put practice for your sports teams on Wednesday night because it conflicted with prayer meeting? Now you can't get them to start, stop scheduling soccer games on Sunday morning. Why? And, and the people are like, well, I don't know what we should do. Should we let our kids go to soccer on Sunday morning or let them go to church? Well, I don't know what to do. You don't know what to do? How can you not know what to do? The church and the body of Christ and the ministry of the Lord is not a spoke on the wheel. It is the hub. It is the core of what we're supposed to be about. And so what happens, he says, we, we are not seeing the church as the organizing center of all other concerns. Church members who have been conditioned all their lives to devote themselves to building their own kingdom and whose flesh naturally gravitates in that direction anyway, find it hard to invest much energy in the kingdom of God. And so we face crossroads and crisis points in our lives and we think, oh man, how do we fit our response into our normal routines. You don't. You step away from your normal routines and say, Lord, let me seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness, and then all these things will be added to me. It doesn't work the other way around. And so what happens? After an initial fervor, when the crisis comes, we realize that our response to it was rooted more in survival than in genuine salvation. It was prompted more by fear than by faith. And so eventually what happens? We just revert back to where we were. We hit reset and go back to automatic and go back to doing just what we've always done. So what happens? When God begins to work and when we begin to cry out earnestly to him, and we're serious about what he says and does, enough to live according to whatever he shows us in that time, what happens is that he begins to revive his people. The shaking of all those inadequate foundations that we put under ourselves, well, when we see those things shaking, what should happen is that it, it revives our dependence upon the Lord. It shows us that you don't need to be resting on politics. There's no Democrat or Republican who can lead you into the kingdom. Did you say amen? I think I was waiting for an amen in there. Yeah, there's no politician who's going to get you there. There is one prince of peace and there is one king of glory and he is the only one who can get you there. And if you put in your wagon attached to a star that's going to crash and burn, folks, we're of all people most foolish. We are a people who need to recognize that these inadequate foundations are going to crumble. I think Jesus told some parables about that. So what do we do? We recognize that it's not the politicians. It's not attacks on the symbol of national pride in Washington. It's not seeing what the stock market's doing this week. It's not finding out if our favorite columnists and, and television personalities are telling us what we want to know. It's not that. 
What has God shown us? Well, that's where we want to be able to to track down in the next few minutes together to see the indications of God's power at work when he is restoring his people. It starts very simply when we are overcome by a sense of our own inadequacy and a sense of our own desperation and our own understanding of the futility of the plans of human beings. When we finally get to the place to say, you know what? You're dumb as a post and I am too. Uh, You think you've got an answer to this? Go ahead, try it out there. I'll listen to you. Yeah, now, do you want the the problems without an alphabetical order or do you want a bulletin? You, You don't know what you're saying and I don't either. Because we don't have answers that only God has. And so until we come to the sense of our own desperation, that own sense of our own frailty, our own sense of our own sinfulness that skews our judgment and messes up our understanding of how to get discernment and wisdom from on high. We've got to come to that place where our starting point back to God is that we see the desperate condition of the human race and we say, no, if your plan does not line up with God's plan, I am not remotely interested. And yet we think, well, yeah, but you got to make some compromise. You got to go along to get along. No, you don't. No, well, on God's part. Now in the human situation, you better be ready to compromise because all of us are dumb. You got to give in and say, you know what? The truth is, I don't know what the truth is, but God does. And I need to be listening to him. So I need to be overcome with a sense of what Isaiah experienced when he saw the Lord in Isaiah 6. He says, I saw the Lord. And his train filled the temple. And the angels cried, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then what's this to say in verse 5 of Isaiah 6? This is what he says. I, I say, woe is me. I'm ruined. I am a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Once I've seen him, whatever else I thought about how good I could do it or how good anybody else could do it, it all hit the dirt and washed away. Done. I've seen the Lord. Years ago, we were at a Christmas, I mean, a New Year's Eve service, and, and, and the guy who was leading the service said, trying to get a, a kind of an emotional response here, says, what I want you to do in the next few minutes is, is act as if Jesus, the King himself, walked through the back door of our worship experience here tonight and respond the way you would respond when Jesus walks in the room. And I'm going like, uh-uh, not me. <laughs> yeah, there is no place for me to be standing and clapping for Jesus. Find me a place in the dirt for my nose to fit into. Because, you see, we got, we got to realize that, no, no, I, I, my, my own futility, my own desperation, and my own wickedness, my own failures, and my own inability to be able to comprehend how bad sin really is and how much the world has been impacted by it. it, it when I see the king face-to-face, all I can do is bow down humbly before him. And when we see all the hordes of of enemies around us, surrounding us, and and we feel like we're we're such in in the minority. I mean, the churches are not growing the way they should be growing, and we're just not 
having the impact we used to have. Really, what, what period of time are you particularly thinking about when we were having such a great impact? Well, I remember when we used to gather, you know, well, that's good, and, and praise God for that, but th- you were still in desperate need of, of the Savior to come. And so sometimes when the enemies come around us, we, we think we can put together a plan. And so after Wednesday happened in the U.S., everybody went to their caucuses. We're going to caucus ourselves to death. We're going to meet and meet and discuss and plot and plan and scheme and devise what we're going to do. And we're going to figure this thing out. Yes, David. No, you're not. You're not going to figure it out at all. There was a king of Israel called Jehoshaphat, and he got word that there were massive armies coming from the southeast comprised of of three different nations gathered together, and they were going to come, and Jerusalem was going to be dust, and he was going to be dead, and his people were going to be a little footnote in history. And so instead of convening a cabinet of war and beginning to talk about how shall we get to the place where we need to surrender these boogers, Instead of saying, how can we do what we need to do to defeat them? How, what do we need to do to, to stave off this, this encroachment upon our sovereign state? How do we keep them from doing that? He didn't do that. He gathered the nation and they prayed. And here's what he said in one part of that prayer. Oh, our God. This is verse 12 of Second Chronicles 20. Will you not execute judgment on them? In other words, Lord, if you don't do it, there's nothing we can do. This is going to take you doing something, Lord. We can't do this. So, oh, Lord, would you execute judgment? Would you show yourself strong? Would you be mighty? Would you show us what it means when you have said in the past, the battle is the Lord's? Could you show us that? And then he says this incredible thing. If we could just get to the place where in the church and in the nation we would actually just say this. We are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. I ain't admitting nothing. I ain't powerless. I can come up with some plan. Yeah, before you get squished like a bug. Yeah, you can come up with a plan. It's not going to work. He says we are powerless against this great horde that's coming against us. And here's this great line. We don't know what to do. Wouldn't that be awesome to hear some pastor stand in your pulpit and say, here's the answer. No, to be able to just say, we don't know what to do. To hear a local school teacher say, class, they're telling me to teach you this stuff, but truth is, it's never worked in the history of the world. I'm not sure why they think it'll work now. We don't know what to do. And to have our governor and have our senators and our congressmen and our legislators be able to say, you know what, this is unprecedented. We don't know what to do. We see, here's what happens. Everybody else says, we knew that all along. We were just waiting for you to figure it out. You, we knew you didn't know because we don't know. But here's what he says. We don't know what to do. But what's the key? Our eyes are on you. You think that would make a difference? We don't know what to do. We are powerless. We don't know what to do. But our eyes are on you. Therefore, we do not lose hope. And so there's a confession. There's this sense in which we've got to come to the place where we are overcome. 
by a sense of our own powerlessness, our own desperation, our own sense of the futility of any plans that we put up there. We need the Lord. Second thing that has to happen in this process, we get overcome by our own sense of need. Secondly, we get overwhelmed by a sense of the holiness and majesty of God. The greatest thing that can define who you are as a person and what your prospects will be are your understanding of who the Lord God is. If you don't know who he is and you have a God who is only a little bit bigger than human beings, you got the wrong God. That is not who the Lord God Almighty is. When you understand that you can see the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus and you look in the face of the Savior and you see the wonder of who he is, you are undone like Isaiah was. And then you are lifted up at the same moment. I serve that God. This is my Lord. This is my king. This is the one who does know all wisdom necessary to do whatever is necessary. I serve this God because he is to be revered with holy awe. What a great, great God. Contemporary notions of God have reduced him to a size that we can ignore him without consequences. And we can serve him without sacrifice and be okay with that. That's not who the Lord God is. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, I I know who you think God is, but that's not my God. Well, when are you going to repent of your idolatry? Because there is only one God. You don't get to create him in your own image and out of your own imagination. He is who he says he is. John saw the Lord. In the book of Revelation, it says, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet. As a dead man. And then he laid his right hand upon me saying, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I was here before you got here. I'm going to be here after you've gone from this world. It's okay. I am the Lord and I have called you by name. You are mine. You have become a part of a people for my own possession. Therefore, I get this sense in which I am overwhelmed by a sense of awe at the holiness, the wonder, the glory, the beauty, the majesty, the power. And if we think we can do it better than he can, then you're just admitting, as I would be admitting, that I don't know who he is. He is the Lord. Well, I sense my sinfulness and I see his majesty and holiness. The third thing that has to happen, that I get overjoyed by a sense of amazing relief at his compassion and his grace poured out for me, saying, I know you're desperate. I know you need a deliverer. Here's Jesus. Let me share with you the one who will take your sin upon himself. Let me share with you the one who is to be your high priest and the sacrificial lamb, both brought not into the tabernacle made with hands, but the the holy of holies, the holiest of holies in heaven, where he presents as high priest the sacrifice to atone for all of our inadequacies. All of the things that devastate us, all of our inconsistencies, all of our powerlessness, all of our sin. And he goes in and says, Father, that old Horner boy needs what only you and I can give him. The church he's a part of needs what you and I alone can give him. Their nation needs what you and I alone can give them. And it says he ever lives to make intercession for us. Be careful. 
I'm liable to break out in the song, Terry. <laughs> I mean, hallelujah, what a Savior. What a glorious Savior. So when we understand that, we get to say, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yeah, I've, I've tried to do it by the law of religion. I've tried to do it according to the wisdom of the world and the ages. I've tried to follow this. I've tried to follow that. But until I bow down at the feet of Jesus and say, you alone, then I am, I'm doomed to fail. Well, that's the part where we're overjoyed when we see this is what I've offered you. You can be delivered. And then the fourth piece of that revival is when we see all of that, we're overpowered by a sense of the urgency, the necessity of our own personal individual piety. We've got to grow to maturity in Christ, to know him and to make him known. That's a part of what we're called to do as his people. We see this is not optional. This is not Christianity 401. This is not Christianity at some graduate level. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. To grow in personal holiness for Christ. And to live that way without compromise. That's what he's calling us to do. And to be a part of a church that is being purified. We are described in Revelation as the bride being adorned to be presented to the Lamb of God on his wedding day. I don't know about most of you brides, but I've I've done probably five or six hundred weddings in my lifetime. And I don't mean to sound crass, but I ain't never seen an ugly bride. I mean, I'm telling you, when she steps through that back door, I get weak need. I mean, to this day, when I see a bride walking out, I'm just like, oh, my God, do you, do you know what you're getting here? You know, speak to that groom, wake up, wake up, look at who's coming for you. And we get them there to the front and say, listen, young lady, you represent the church. Adorned in resplendent beauty to be presented to this guy (laughs) who has no way of appreciating what he's getting. Like one friend said, it's like handing a Stradivarius violin to a a monkey. He said, I don't, you know, what in the world is that? But in that day, the church adorned in purity will be presented to the bridegroom, Jesus, the Lamb of God. Oh, my word. individual piety and church purity is going to have impact on cultural transformation. And we can't expect it to happen out there if it's not happening in here. It begins with us. So, let's wrap this up. We're two minutes over time. (laughs) Like I cut it that close. (laughs) Here's what happens. God, according to our plan works best among us when life is on easy street and all is well. How's your life? Good right now. Family's in good health. Kids are in good health. Got a good job. Got a great thing going on. We had good vacations. Oh, man, life is good. How's your relationship with the Lord? Oh, it's just wonderful. Until you catch a cold. How could God let this happen to me? You know, how could this possibly happen to someone? I've served him everywhere I could, and now I've got a cold. And now it's COVID. You can, I mean, you know, some of you know, people have died of COVID. You know. 
And we see all that happening. And we think, how could God let that happen? Here's the thing. Let me just kind of walk that little picture for you. God works best not in ease, but in times of turmoil. When catastrophe hits us, that's when the crisis point hits. And the word crisis in the Greek is to judge between two decisions, two directions. And we're at a crossroads. And the crisis of the moment is one that we cannot ignore. At the end of World War II, one nation called South Korea emerged absolutely tattered with very few Christians in the whole country. And then we're ushered essentially right into a police action called the Korean War that still hasn't been officially stopped. They've ceasefire, but that's never really ended. And after the Korean War, God started doing something, raising up from the ashes, raising up from the the crisis, and raising up from the, the pit of the destruction that took place in two wars. He brought out a nation of people for his own possession, probably per capita the most Christian nation in the world, South Korea. And churches of unprecedented size began to grow over there. One church over over half a million people were members of one church. Kathy and I were over there and several years ago and had a chance to visit some churches and preach in some conferences. And one of the opportunities was to go and preach at the end of boot camp for their armed services. So we got we got there and and we're not preaching to the whole boot camp. It's a, it's a auditorium filled with 3,000 troops. And let me just say, I'm glad there are allies. These were some men out there. They had on green t-shirts and they were some big men in some small shirts or else there was some muscles going on in that place. <laughs> it was like out there like this. And, and I'm thinking, well, who are, who are these guys? These are the men who have come to Christ during boot camp and who are getting baptized this afternoon. What? Yeah, they have chaplains that if they're not winning people to Christ, they replace them with chaplains who are better evangelists. (laughs) Yeah, that doesn't quite happen the same way. And so after we finished this chapel, which was an amazing experience in itself, they come out in platoons into the the, uh, courtyard out there, and then they march down the road to this massive swimming pool, and we baptized 3,000 new converts that afternoon. I'm thinking, okay, this looks like revival. It, it look, this looks good. This is going to happen again in a few weeks when another class comes through. And these are just the Baptist ones that are getting immersed in the pool. They say, oh, yeah, we got another whole thing because Presbyterians are strong here, you know. And, and so we, we're, we're taking care of that in another way. And, and uh, we're baptizing them without all the swimming pool stuff, you know. Great. I'm asking you today, what has to happen in our churches, in our nation, for us to be able to see God take us through the cycles of revival in the book of Judges and get us from the devastating recognition of our own frailty and inability to do what we need to do to the place where we cry out to God and then he sends the deliverer, Jesus, to heal us as a land and to restore us to where he wants us to be. We want to be like Joshua at the end of his book, Joshua's book where he comes to this whole thing and says, look, I know 
that there are people out there who are willing to do all kinds of other stuff, follow all other gods. And here's what I'm saying. Fear the Lord, people. Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. Now, if it's disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, then choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Are you going to serve the gods of your fathers, which they served beyond the river? Or are you going to serve the gods of the Amorites and all the stuff that's going on around you in the surrounding culture, in the land that you're now living? Are you becoming just like them? Or here's what I want you to know. I want you to recognize that as for me and as for my house, you know the rest of it. We will serve the Lord. That's what we're doing today. We're saying, Lord, lay it down. We will serve the Lord. Let's not waste this crisis. Right? 9-11 came and went. We We didn't do it. Pandemic showed up. We didn't do it. Kids get murdered in their schools during the day, and we don't do it. Things are happening all around us, and now the capital is, is attacked. And we don't do it. What this very word crisis says, it's time to do it. Let's resolve together that we choose this day that we will serve the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. We will leave nothing in the back. Let's pray. Father, do among us what only you can do. Accomplish in us what no human instrument, philosophy, ideology, government, academic institution, or anything else can do. Lord, you alone are the one to whom we turn. Lord, we don't know what to do until we look to your word, until we lift our eyes to see you. And then, Lord, we find all that we need to be restored, and to have things made right. And Lord, as long as we're in this world, there's going to be a battle going on. We understand that. But Father, may we be armed by the Spirit of the living God to let the battle be yours. And we will be faithful in Jesus' name. Amen.